Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It's so nice to be here. And, you know, I can't believe it. Let me check it one more time. But I see sun. It's what a nice, you know, for a break, a little bit nice day, especially on a Sabbath day. I can't even remember when was the last time we had a day like that on a Sabbath day. It was way over a month ago. So it's nice to see all of you, not all of you, but many of us here that, you know, otherwise would miss because of all the weather. So thank you for coming. Thank you for sharing the Sabbath day with us. And thank you so much, the musician, for this wonderful, beautiful song. It was a great song. Thank you for your practice, your dedication, and, you know, coming to prepare her. So as you heard, the title of my message today is about eternal security. And, you know, as I was working on the message, the concept of time, I wasn't thinking about the concept of time. So I just realized today morning that, you know, we might go a little bit over time. So please forgive me. I don't know how long it's going to take. We'll try to make it short as much as we can. If you have any, if you make notes, just please make any notes. If we come across some scriptures or some misunderstanding, just make sure that, did you know, during the speaker corner or anyway, it will come to me so we'll discuss the issues or misunderstanding. So what is the doctrine of eternal security? The doctrine basically says that it teaches that salvation can never be lost. Once you become a Christian, once you accept Christ as your personal Savior, no matter what, what happened, what you do, it will not affect your eternal salvation. Along the way, you, must, you may lose your rewards, but you will never, ever lose your salvation. So the whole concept, the whole assumption of this doctrine is, since there is nothing you can do to obtain this salvation, there is obviously nothing you can do to lose this salvation. Everything comes from God. And two weeks ago, we learned during the Bible study the historical context of this particular doctrine. And I'm not going to spend so much time trying to go to the history, but we know this started a long time ago from the Greek philosophy, way before Christ came across this, you know, here across this earth. And it was actually the John de Calvin, great, smart, intelligent preacher, who popularized this doctrine into our century, because this doctrine became popular in North America around the 18th century. And as of right now, there are some churches that are splitting in half. And it's, again, becoming very active. So, one more time, the whole concept of this doctrine is that God, through his sovereign will, decided long time ago, before the creation of the whole universe, he decided who will be safe and who will be lost. So, basically, God, before he created, before he put his plan together, he just decided, like, Jesse, save Caitlin lost, Landon safe, Jennifer lost, and on and on and on. So the most common scripture that was used by Calvin and many other preachers comes from Romans chapter 8. So I'd like you to open the Bible to this chapter, and we'll start right there. And this doctrine is also called, once safe, always safe. In Romans chapter 8, And right here from verse 28, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. 
So I want you to write in your notes the first word, called. Verse 29. There will be another word. For, him, for whom he foreknew, write, write down the other word, foreknew. He also predestined, that's another big word, write it right there, predestined, to be confirmed to the image of his son, that he may be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, this he, this, he, uh, this he is also called, and whom he called, this he also justified. Write down your next word, justified. And whom he justified, this he is, he is also glorified. So we have a bunch of words here. And just based on this few sentences, it would make lots of sense. It would think like, God foreknew everything for knowledge, you know, called, justified. It looked like everything here got pre-planned way ahead of time. So let's Let's kind of break them down one by one. When you talk about a calling, we call about call. You know, we are in a church. Every single one of us is called on once. So this word comes from our Greek word, ekklesia. So it means that God can call us out of something, and God calls us into something. God calls us of the word, but he gives us a calling to do something for him. And, you know, we can know at some biblical example of the nation of Israel. nation of Israel was called by God. Nation of Israel was blessed by God. And through nation of Israel, Messiah came into this world. And through this nation, we have, they persevered the word of God for us in the written form. But we also know that at the end of, they fell so miserably, even though they were called by God. Even though they were predestined by God, they fell. And in also our scriptures, we go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, just two verses, verses 7 and 8. But it says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in numbers than any other people. For you are the least of all the people, but because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the land of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So the one specific but God says, I didn't choose you because we are some special people. I did this because I put an oath with a swear to Abraham a long time ago, and I'm just fulfilling my promise. But in the end, we know the story of Israel, how miserably they fell in the end, how they were so unfaithful towards God. So I want you to understand this word called is not something that, you know, because God called you, it's a done deal, okay? Let's go and look at another word, for knowledge. And for knowledge, which is basically what it means that God knows Everything. God alone has for knowledge. God alone has all the knowledge what happened to every single one of us in the past. So whenever he wants and decides, he can look he can look back past and say, you know, everything that happened to me, to you, and to anybody. God has this right. Because he's God. God knows everything that happens in the present. And God knows everything that happens in the future. Let me be specific now. God has the right to know whatever happens in the future. And God can pick and choose what he wants to know through his sovereign right. Would you agree with me? I want to look at some of the scriptures. Because some people know that, some people think that God can preordain every single event that happen in our lives. I will tell you that it's up to God. God can pick and choose what he wants, and, but God can pick and choose what he doesn't want to know. I will show you some scriptures. Go to Genesis chapter 11. 
Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, verse 5. And you look, look what happened there with the Tower of Babel. But the Lord came down. Actually starts from verse 4. No, just verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. So just reading these two verses, God had to come down just to check it. So he pick and choose not to know. Even though he had the right to know what's happening, he had to come down and just to see what's happening. We're talking about God's foreknowledge. I'll give you another one. Genesis, Genesis 18. Since we're in this book, let's stick to Genesis. Okay, Genesis 18. Genesis 18, verse 20. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, look what God says. I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that it has come to me. And if not, I will know. So it gives me a, it's not my opinion, somebody else's opinion, but just through the scriptures, give me some kind of a sense that God has, to, God has the right if he decides to know or not to know. God has the right to come and see by himself what's going on. So to me, this concept that God's preordained every single details, I have a hard time to find it in the Bible. And I'll give you one more. Which is in, in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. And now the story with Abraham, which, was, which he was about to kill his son. And he says in verse 12 here, and he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad, or do anything to him. And look what it says here. For now, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So let's say, just forget about my opinion, but just based on the word of God, we could say, maybe God didn't know what Abraham's going to do. And I know that people argue about this thing, but I'm just saying, just look what the word of God says. And just stick to that. Forget our opinion. Let's look at another big word that we just read in Romans 8. Predestination. I'll give you the Bible, uh, Bible definition. So let me find what, what I find the definition about the predestination. Basically what it says is God's work in ordaining salvation for people without their prior knowledge to determine before or to ordain the process by which people can obtain salvation. And the Greek word, Greek verb translated predestinate is prorizo or prorazio. You can check it. I'll give you the spelling. P-R-O-O-R-I-Z-O. You can check it. And let me give you John Calvin's definition of predestination. John Calvin's definition of predestination is predestination as the eternal degree of God by which he decided before the foundation of the world what is to become of on each and every individual. That's John Calvin's defi definition. We'll see later whose definition is truth. So as a God's people, we're supposed to have the way to understand what is God's will, how is God going to accomplish his plan. Because we know it through the God's festival season. It's not a big secret. All these people live in the dark because they refuse to celebrate God's holy festivals. Like, for example, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's a beautiful scripture that talks about the resurrection. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in verse 20, Paul is describing the order of the things to come, all the salvation. And he says in verse 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is the first one. For since by one man came death, by men also came the resurrection of the dead. And next verse is very interesting. If you're Calvinist, you may have a hard problem with this verse. For, our, for, our, for us in Adam, all died. That's true. We all have this carried the death penalty in our head. Even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. If God predestined everybody to eternal hell or eternal salvation, why are we talking about scriptures like this? Keep going. There is the order of the salvation process. But each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterwards, those who are in Christ at his coming, okay, that's not over, and at the end of this whole process, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he, till he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So to, to us, there is not a shocker. We all understand the concept, starting from Passover and, you know, Feast of Unleavened Bread, going to, you know, Pentecost and all the, one, to, all the, all the, all the ones to, to the tabernacle. So I, want, I also want to look at some of the, in Matthew, which is one of the parables, which also is confused by so many people. But just, just quickly, Matthew chapter 22. Just go to this parable. Matthew chapter 22. It is the, the parable of the wedding feast. If everybody is predestined to the kingdom of God, or the people that are predestined, and some people that are lost, why would Jesus tell this parable? And he says, like right at the beginning, he says, verse 2, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, and sent out the servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. And you know this parable. They just refused. They were busyness of life. They have to do all different things. In verse 8, it says, Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy, because they refused to come. If they were predestined, they would come to the wedding. God would predestine, they would make sure that they would come to the wedding. They refused to come to the wedding. So as a result, he says to the servant, he says in verse 9, he says, Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. And we know in the end there come a man to the wedding without his wedding garment. And in verse 14 he says, For many are called, but few are chosen. If God predestined all these people, what would be the whole story, whole parable talking about why the Jews did not accept Christ and invitations to the wedding? They were predestined to fail by God? It would just wouldn't make any sense. Let's talk about justification. Let me give you a definition. Process by which an individual is brought into a merit right relationship with God. So in other words, we need to be made right with God. And justification is the beginning process of our salvation. It's just the point of entry. Process is the salvation. It's not just the one thing that so many times you hear over the TV, like, you know, people express like, oh, you, you can probably met them in your personal life. People will say, yes, I was saved in 1970. I remember it was Tuesday evening or something like that. That's not true. 
That was just the beginning of the process that is salvation. It's not like, you know, you were saved then, you don't have to worry about anything. I'm saved now. No, that was just the beginning of the process where you accepted Jesus Christ. I will show you in Romans what Paul writes about justification. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, just two verses here, 18 and 18. But it says, Therefore, as though through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. You see the all, all men, one man, all men? In verse 19, For as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made Righteous. Again, it's the same concept. Many will be made righteous. Not like some were predestined and some were not predestined to eternal life. The next word, big word that I told you is sanctification. And all this process, our salvation, that's actually what you should, the main, main part of our life is sanctification. It starts with just justification. It ends with glorification. Everything in between, we go through this process, which the Bible calls sanctification. What it basically means is just the process of being made holy, resulting in a changed lifestyle and change of our behavior. Believers are set apart for a purpose. God wants to sanctify us. God wants to separate us for a purpose, for his work. God is holy. God is righteous. He's separate from humankind because we can't live close to God because we would die. And he wants his people to separate from the rest of humanity for the same process, to teach the people of God the right way of, of life. And I want you to go to First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. And verse 3. For this is the will of God. And it says, your sanctification. That you should abstain from sexual immorality, and he goes on and on. But that's the will of God for the people that he called. That we should be sanctified, that we should become holy, like our Father in heaven is holy. And glorification, we don't spend much time. That's basically at the end of the process, when God's going to raise all these people. And the one, especially in the first resurrection, will have a glorified, immortal body. And we know from the scriptures when Paul beautifully described in the book of Revelation that, you know, the second death will not have power over us because we're going to prove to God that we actually overcome us. So just think about one more time in this doctrine. If God really, before he set everything into motion, before he put all this plan together, if God would just say and say, I want this person to be saved and not this person, and I want this person to be saved and not this person, if that would really actually make sense, it would go along with all the Bible says. You know, I think we'll, be have, we'll have a very difficult time to go from the beginning of the Bible to the cover of the Bible trying to prove this point. And I will go through some of this. So first, people will say that God is sovereign. And God is sovereign. He can make decisions whatever he wants to do. And the first thing you will take, like, yeah, that makes sense. God can do whatever he wants to do. But if you go to the Bible, it's actually not true. But Pastor Agent said, God is obligated by his covenant. If he will perform according to his covenant. Okay? So, God can do everything that he wants to do. On one sense, it's true. But God, God has, God, God has a will that he wants to accomplish. And we have to find what is that God's will that God wants in our life. 
So let's see first what is God's will in our life. Let's go first Timothy chapter 2. Just flip a few pages over. First Timothy chapter 2. What God wants for all the human beings. Okay? What God wants. First Timothy chapter 2. Verse 4. Look what it says here. God who desire all men to be saved. Some of them. Few of them. The one I pick and choose. No. God desire all men to be saved. To come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God. One mediator between God and man, and man, and man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for how many? For all, to be testified in due time. You see, not just for a specific group of people. He was ransom for all. For all. Go to Second Peter chapter, Second Peter chapter three. What is the will of God? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's a God will. And the last scripture, I want you to go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And my favorite disciple... Talking about Peter now. It's all, it took so long for Peter to, to eventually shape his mind what God is all about. And Peter come for this glorious revelation in Acts chapter 10 and verse 34. It is very important in our study. Look what Peter said in, chapter 20, in verse 20, 34 in chapter 10 of the book of Acts. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In true, in true, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Why is that important? But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Think about it. Partiality. If God is partial, then do you know what? Then the whole concept, the doctrine of once you've always says makes true. Because God is partial. I pick Daniel over everybody else. I pick Landon over everybody else. God is impartial. He doesn't show any favoritism to some people over the other people. No. So, another point that people say, God can do everything. It's his sovereign will. God can do whatever he wants to. The Bible says it's not true. For example, God cannot lie. Makes sense, right? You can check it. Titus 1, verse 2. You can check it. God cannot sin. There are many scriptures, but you can go to the second... Chronicles, chapter 19, and verse 7. And the 7 also speak about partiality. God cannot deny himself. Doesn't matter what happened. Second Timothy, chapter 2, verse 13. God cannot change. Like Pope Francis in his article says that God evolves. When Hebrew 13 and verse says, Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. God doesn't change. God doesn't change his mind because something happened along the way. And also, God doesn't tempt you with evil. It's also important. James chapter 1. You can read verses 13 to 14. So if God is love, if God can do all of these things, how can God in his love 
predestined some people to eternal hell and some people to eternal salvation. It just doesn't make any sense, right? But we'll see, we'll see. So we have to make sure that when we read the Bible, when we study some of the passages, and you know, I admit, some verses is very difficult for interpretation. One thing that we have to make sure, that doesn't matter if it's just one verse or two or three or four or the entire chapter, we have to make sure that this whole concept, this one verse or a chapter, is with the harmony with the entire Bible. It's with the harmony with the entire word of God. You can't just take pick and choose what we say and try to establish a doctrine. It doesn't work that day. I will show you another scripture that's very, very popular among this. One safe, all of us safe. And I will show you also what is God trying to accomplish to the salvation process. In Ephesians chapter 1. Open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. And verse 4. Just as he chose us. So you read through all these words before, right? Paul is writing again. Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the word. I want you to highlight the next part of the verse. That we should be holy without blame and before him in love. And the next verse. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. So the people will say, see. God pick and choose you before the foundations of the world. He predestined you for salvation just so you can adopt you as a son. That's what they'll say. That's what, you know, they're writing the scripture, okay? What is the purpose of choosing? What God actually predestined before the time? Did he actually predestine all the individuals? Or he did predestine the process the individuals have to go through to accomplish the salvation. I ask you to highlight this part that we should become what? Holy, with blame, before him in love. And, you know, this concept is not just, you know, starting here from Ephesians. It goes to the entire Bible. God says, I'm holy, and I want you to be holy. We'll go to some of the scriptures later. But just to illustrate the process, just make it a little bit easier for you to understand, okay? I want to give you an example. Let's say you're a good student, and you want to enhance your knowledge of the Bible, and let's say you decided to go to university and study theology. You sign up the local university, you sign for this course. And let's say the teacher, whoever the teacher is, before you come, before you come on the first day, before you even go, show up at the class, let's say the teacher will come and say he would predestine in his mind that all the students that come and sit in the first row will be there, all the students that come sit in the second row will get B, and the next one will get C, and the next one D, and whoever sits on the last row will get F. So the student comes show up on the first day of the class, they say whatever they want to say. But some will say, they have a choice. They have a choice of sitting in the first, or in the second, or in the third. What would you say to that as a student? Is that fair? Teacher could say, why go through all this process and go A, B, C, D? I can just get the list and look at the names and say, like, Kowalczyk, I don't like this name, F. <laughs> Davis, Safe. And just go on like this. Would that make any sense to you? So, what do you think? Which model, when you read the Bible from cover to cover, is that the model in the Bible that God wants you to understand? No. Let me give you another scenario. You sign for a class, and the teacher comes, you show up on the first day, 
The teacher gives you the outcome of the course, and he says what is expected for every single one to pass this course. The minimum requirement is this to get, let's say, D. If you process the information to the, let's say, 90% of the course, you will get A. And so on, it will be E and C and D. Would that be fair? So which mode of fit into the bias? Number one or number two? Think about it. Going from the Old Testament to the New Testament is the same story. We know the requirement. There's nothing hidden about the requirement. We know it in the Bible. What God requires of every human being, right? We know that. There's no any confusion in it. All this process. God wants us to be holy, without blame, and in love. Let me give you another scenario here, okay? A young Christian wants to get married. Young people want you to listen, okay? Let's say you want to get married. I hope, and I beg you, that before you get married, okay, I hope that you will predestine the quality that you want in your partner. I hope so, that you will do that, okay? As a Christian, what do you think will be the number one quality before you go for a date with any, any one of them? What do you think will be number one? I hope they will say that this person is in the church. Number one will say, I hope that my future boyfriend and girlfriend is in the church. If it's not in the church, we'll have trouble for your life. I'm telling you. What will be number two or three? That this person, you put German on your list, and I want my future husband and wife to be what? Hardworking, honest, how they treat their parents, sister, and siblings will compile all the list, right? Eventually, you go on the dating process. They will see. We will evaluate this person based on your list of requirements. What do you think is God doing with us? I think that God is doing the same thing. I'll show you some scriptures in the Bible to support my argument. If you go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. The same concept is in the Bible. We as a church, Christ wants to marry us. He's a very high requirement for his bride, okay? Very high requirement. Holy, without blame, and in love. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. And it starts here with a simple, husband, love your wives, just as the Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And pay attention to what's going on in verse 26. That he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. What the qualification? Holy and without blemish. Do we see it? So if we go and read with this kind of mind, if we go and read the same passage that we read in Ephesians or in Romans chapter 8, we have a better understanding of what's happening. So let's say another scenario. Let's say as a family, you want to adopt a child. Before you even show up at the adoption agency, you are and your wife would sit home and you will make some basic decision. You will decide if you want a boy or a girl. Right? You will decide what kind of, let's say, what kind of race this child is. Is 
Is it black? Is it white? Is it from China? Is it from Africa? Is it from Russia? We'll make this decision, whatever is available. You will set the criteria, what age you want to adopt it. A young baby, an older one. And now, that's not, that's not just, just because you want something like that. You will go to the, you will go to the agency and you say, with well, a child, guess what happened? They will have a bunch of requirements you will have to meet to adopt a child. They'll check your criminal record if you're, not, if you're not a child abuser, if you're not a pedophile, if you're in jail, they'll check your income, how much money you make, if you're able to support this child. Nothing is just coming like just, just free in this life. And, you know, God works and operates in the same way. So the God plans of our, the, prop, the process of this plan that we call sanctification, it doesn't just, like most people believe, the Sunday-keeping Christians just mean once you justify it, you're good. No, that's just the starting point. Through the process of sanctification, God wants us to make us holy and, not, and unblemished. And, you know, let's go to Leviticus. I will show you. The whole concept goes throughout the Bible. From the beginning of the page to the last, to the last page of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 11. Let's look at this word, what it says here. Leviticus 11. Leviticus 11 says, in verse 45, what God says to Israelites, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourself, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you want to have a part in the first resurrection, you shall to consecrate your life and be holy just the way how God is holy. And the same concept is also Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 7. Just write it down. You don't have to go there. And Leviticus 19 and verse 2. It's also there. And it's also many other scriptures. You're going through the Deuteronomy and some of them. But then we'll say, Jen, that's just the Old Testament, okay? Let's go to First Peter. Because Peter says exactly the same thing what is in the Old Testament. First, First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 15. Look what Peter writes. But he who called you is holy. And you also be holy in some of your conduct. No, you be holy in all conduct. It doesn't say, you know, you are saved, you can do whatever you want to do. Or, you know, you're saved for, for eternity. Who cares? Verse 16. Because it is written, and he quotes the same passage that we just read in Leviticus 11. In Leviticus 11, he says, be, be, be holy, for I am holy. And verse 17, and if you call on, you, on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. See, the same concept, without partiality. He says, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. If you're predestined to be saved, why fear? Who fear? What, what should I fear for? There's nothing to fear. I'm saved. Knowing, verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of lamb without blemish and without spot. You see the same concept? Without blemish and without spot. That's the characteristic that Doug requires, okay? When you want to be in the first resurrection, you want to be part of the first fruits, that's what you need to be. Without spot, without blemish. 
So now the question is, we went through some of the wording just to help you when you read some of the Bible passages, how to put everything in context. Now, can you lose your salvation? If you can lose salvation, how do we lose our salvation? Okay, how we do that? Okay, is it, is it in the Bible? Can we do that? Okay, I want to show you something that you know. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Happened before. First Samuel chapter 16. And in verse 7. How God is judging people. It says in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel. Do not look at his appearance. Or at his physical stature. Because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as men see. For men looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. If God predestined something. That he, there is no need for God. To look at somebody's heart. And just see how the, how the individual behaves. But let's, let's go to verse 14. And look happened, what happened to Saul. What was the result of Saul? What was it says in verse 14. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. So if I have the Holy Spirit inside me, as Saul did, so maybe if I disobey God, the Holy Spirit can leave me. Is that possible? Well, let's see. We'll see. We'll see. Let's look at David's life. He was a sinner. And let's go to Psalms 51 and see how David described his process when he begged God for forgiveness. Psalm 51. And in verse, in verse 10, David is writing here. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And look at verse 11. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David recognized it, that God can take Holy Spirit away from him. Man, after God's own heart, he knew it, that he can do, cross the line at some point, that God is able to take the Holy Spirit away from him. Let me give you another example. Can I use this analogy? We know it's true. That you know our bodies. Are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Right? We can see this in Corinthians. Let's go Ash. Let's go and read Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And verse 16, what Paul is writing, he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple are you? I will show an important lesson that we can learn, what the Israelites or the Jews didn't learn, okay? It was about the physical temple, but it's some crucial fact that we can learn from the temple, okay? I will show you, the Jews had, when the temple was standing, when the temple was standing, when the temple was built, and the Holy Spirit eventually filled this temple, they, they, they fully believed that, that once they have this temple, holy temple standing there, then nothing evil can happen to them. 
they were fully persuaded that as long as God is here, even Babylonians, that they, can, they, they can do nothing to us. Because God's presence is with us. Where did they get such a concept? I want to show you Second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7. And now when the prophet Nathan is speaking to, to David, and in verse 12, it says, When your days are fulfilled, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13. He shall be the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. There is the word forever. Okay? Verse 14. I'll be his father, he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And all these things, when you go, that's what the Jews had understanding along the way. The Israelites had their understanding along the way. Now I want you to go to Jeremiah. We know what happened Jeremiah. The Babylonians are coming. They are very close. And Jeremiah says, don't fight. God will destroy this town. And it says, that's impossible. That's not what the God says in the Holy Word, right? Go to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. And look verse 1. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim, and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of the Judah who enter in, in these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the host, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. They were sinful people. In verse 4, Do not trust in this lying word, saying, Look what they were saying. The temple, the temple, the Lord's temple, the temple of the Lord. Just, you know what? Exactly what Christians say today. I am the Holy, I am, I am the God's temple. I have Holy Spirit in me. There is nothing that can happen to me because I'm safe for eternity. That's exactly what they were saying, the same mistake they were making back then. Okay? And look eventually what happened. Go to Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. God was so fed up with them through the sinful behavior and sinful way. Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 3. Look what happened. Now the glory of the, now the, glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. So the God Holy Spirit got away from the Holy of Holiness. That's where God promised he would reside. Okay? And just stand at the threshold of the temple. He removes his presence from the temple, and the people don't even know it. It's not like it's a visible thing that they can see it. Let's go, what, let's go and check Ezekiel 10. Ezekiel 10 and verse 18. The glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim and moved over to Ezekiel 11 and verse 23. Ezekiel 11 and verse 23. And look what happened now. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city 
and stood at the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. And that's the Mount of Olives. God removed his presence from away from the temple and gave the people a chance. He said, run, don't fight. Whoever leaves, who's going to surrender to Babylon, you will be alive. If you don't, you will be killed. And people, we have temple, we have temple, we have temple, we have temple. We have eternal security. Nothing's going to happen to us. And what happened? We know what happened. So God's presence left the temple because of what? Their sins and inequities. They all believe they have eternal security, but it never happened. Look to Corinthians chapter 6 for an example for us here. Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. It's the same concept. Do you not know that unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And he mentioned all this here. Whoever would not deceive enter the kingdom of God. But in verse 11 he says, and such were some of you. Okay? Some of, you know, we were just like this. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the spirit of our God. It, it means that we cannot come back and do all this thing again? Yes. We can come back and do all this abominable things again. And just keep over to Verse 18. And you know, verse 18, look what it says here. And young people, listen to this. It says, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he commits a sexual immorality, sins against his own body. Why is that important? Keep reading. Verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of this Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are, for you are bought at the price. And it's a story for glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If these people had eternal security, why would Paul spend so much time in the first Corinthians trying to amend their behavior? If they were ordained to eternal security, why he would do that? You know, in the end, the Holy Spirit is going to guide them. It's going to show them the way. There is no need of doing such a big deal out of it and write a letter and just to correct them. So is salvation unconditional. You know, we take one passage from the scripture, from the Bible, that says, you know, that's what Paul says. Like Romans 8, when you read Romans 8 and, chapter tw- and verse 28 to 30. But let's say, go to Romans again, and go to Romans chapter 1. And look what Paul says here. Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for how many people? For just the elect one? Is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Are they all believers? No. It's the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Look at Romans chapter 2. The same thing. Verse 6. Who will render to each one according to his deeds. And verse 7. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Patient continuance. Okay? But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, 
but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does, who does evil, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. And now Paul also said the same thing what Peter said, for there is no partiality with God. If there is no partiality with God, how could God predestine some people to eternal hell and some people to eternal salvation? This concept is very difficult to find in the Bible as you go through the pages of, your, of the Word of God. Romans 5, we read the scriptures, don't have to go there, but when we talk about justification, chapter 5, verses 18 to 19. Okay, Romans, let's go to Romans 10. Romans 10, verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. There is no partiality. If some people were predestined, why did Paul write in his message, you don't have to worry Corinthians, you don't have to worry Ephesians, you are predestined from long time before to do this work. Don't worry about anything else. Why did Paul doesn't write any of his letter like that? Just some scriptures that might suggest something like this. Okay, so that's one part. Now, there are some scriptures that people like to say and twist. These scriptures support eternal salvation or eternal security, like Romans chapter 9. Just go back to Romans chapter 9. And look what the Bible says, okay? It is confusing part of the scripture. I was confused by it many for a long time. Romans chapter 9 and verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, look for verse 11. For the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election may stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Verse 12. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it's written, and this is powerful. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Because only God says something like that. That's powerful. What should we make up of? Part of scriptures like that. Is there any mentions, elections, or is there anywhere mentioned eternal life or salvation in this passage? No. What it says, that the older will serve the younger. That's it. That's the only thing that God says. The older will serve the younger. And and the other part of the scriptures that, you know, that Esau have hated. This thing actually came from Malachi. And it was centuries, centuries later when Esau was dead long time ago. Now look at their lives. God to accomplish the promise to bring the Messiah. He says, the older will serve the younger. And look at Esau. We know what happened. He sold his birthright. 
Did God force him to do that? Did God really force him? Did God really, God really predestined me to do that? No. And what happened later? Did really, did really Jacob serve Esau through their life? If you go through the Bible, can you really find it in your scripture that Jacob, that actually Esau served Jacob? I would say it's the opposite. Jacob was afraid of Esau. And when Esau was alive, he was very blessed. He was very blessed. So this promise, this, this writing in the Romans, it was not about just one person, two individuals, Esau and Jacob. It was about God that promised something. It was about two nations that would come out of that. And you know what? Over the time, if you check your history, you can, you can know what happened to Edom, to Edom, the nation of Edom. They were conquered by the Jews. This is right before Christ came, around I think 150 years before Christ came. And fully converted by force to, to Judaism. That's what happened to Edom. Okay, you can check it in the history. So basically, what the scripture says, God to accomplish his purpose, that's what he did to those two nations, to bring Christ to all of us. Now, what about the concept hate? I was really disturbed by this thing when I found in the Bible. How can God say that I love, you know, Jacob and I hated Esau? Did really God could say, we could say I hate somebody, but God could say something like that. I want you to go to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Look what Christ says. In verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Hate. It means that you really have to hate. I have to hate my wife. I have to hate my children. Now, what it means, what is Christ saying? If I want to be a part of the first resurrection, if I want to be a part of the first fruits, the show of my love towards God, the agape love, should be a higher priority than anything else. I love my children. I love my wife. I love my brethren. But it's a different way how I love my God. And if God is not my first priority and yours, and forget about being in the first resurrection. That's what it says. So that's why Paul says about, did God really hate Esau? No. Was he a great character in the Bible? Absolutely not. We can learn from him not to be like him. That's absolutely true. So we can use scriptures like that. It says God predetermined everything, whatever he wanted, you know, Esau to eternal hell and stuff like that. It just doesn't make any sense when you look in the totality of the Bible, in the harmony of the entire word of God. Let's look at another one. John chapter 10. And this comes, this probably comes more often than any, than in scriptures, okay? John chapter 10, and we all know the scripture. In verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. I grew up on a farm. And, you know, I know what it is to, to transport, let's say, 2,000 sheep from one destination to the other. You have a shepherd who leads them out. They will go. And even just basically whistling or singing. The guy was actually singing. He was singing that song. And sheep were following him right after. They didn't have any problem to follow the shepherd. But guess what? <coughs> sheep can be very easily destroyed. 
you will find enough drugs on the side of the road that will stop you to shoot the drugs. By the time you realize, you're left alone. You won't have So that way you have like a big fold of sheep. You usually have problems. So hard dog to go at the end. You try to keep the sheep together. Okay? And people will say, like, reading the scripture, look at me say, no one can snatch them away. No one. No one. So if no one can snatch them away, is God a liar? Okay? And Jesus Christ, he's a perfect shepherd. How can you love something like that? Let's go to Acts chapter 20. If Christ is a perfect shepherd, and this church, our church, is a Christ church, Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Look what Paul writing to the Ephesians church, okay? If Christ is such a perfect shepherd, right? And he, he will protect everybody who comes into his fold, no matter what. Nobody will be able to snatch them away. In the book of Acts chapter 28, look what Paul says. Therefore, take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit made you overseers. He's writing to the elders. To shepherd the church of God, which he, which he purchased with his own blood. Why? For I know this, that after my departure, Paul's departure, that's a Christ church, still Christ church. What does it say? A savage wolf will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Oh, wait a minute. God predestined. Christ is taking personal responsibility to protect his flock. And we see in the book of Acts that Christ will allow it for the savage world to enter in for other reason. To prove who is worthy, who is not worthy. That's the reason for it. Everybody go through some testing. Look at the Romans chapter 8. The beautiful passage that we heard today that Jessica read to all of us. A beautiful assurance package. Romans chapter 8. And I'm, I'm not going to go through all these verses. But I'll go through some. So I will start from verse 37. Romans chapter 8, 37. And look how Paul beautifully describes it. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, okay, death, life, nor angels, no principalities, no powers, no things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a beautiful assurance package. One word is missing here. You know what the word is missing here? What can separate from the love of God? Sin. Why Paul didn't write? Neither sin can separate it from the love of Christ. Why he didn't write here? here? So what is Paul writing here? Is writing about the outside force. Nobody from the outside will be able to take us apart if we keep focus and follow the, follow the shepherd where he's going. When he hear his voice and his whistling, we'll never be able to be distracted and lose the directions where we're going. That's where we observe the God's holy days. So they remind us every time where we are according to God's plan. And you can check the scripture. It's Isaiah 59. One, two, but it says, our inequities and our sin can separate from the love of God. Nothing else can separate you, only if you sin willfully. That's what can separate you from the love of God. So in conclusion, brethren, I'm actually moving faster than I expected. But that's good. In conclusion, this subject, eternal security, is so vast. There are so many scriptures to cover. We don't have time to go through all of this. But... It's a subject, as I said, that splitting some of the Christian churches in half. In half. I'm not talking about Church of God, like international or other. I'm talking the churches in general. And 
We as a church of God, if you claim that you are, we are a true church of God, you know, if you want to have your children raised properly, you will have, you'll make sure that, you know, whatever happened in their life and your life, you will give them all the resources that they need. You will provide for their homes, you will provide for their schooling, everything they need to attend school, clothing and stuff like that. You will do everything for them. But one day, they will finish school, and one day they'll have to go on their own. And there is so much you can influence then. Your influence is over. What you hope as a parent, that one day they're going to reach this age, that you're going to leave home. What you're hoping as a parent, that they will have the same mentality, they will have the same character, they have the same vision, how we train them when they were young. That's what our Father in Heaven is hoping. That's what he is waiting for us. And kids will go to some trials and tribulations to be tested, to see where they are. Many will go astray. Many will go astray, later realize that that's the wrong path. So young people, don't make mistakes, okay? Don't make mistakes like that. But I want to show you something in the end. What God is required of every single one of us. What is God requiring? I want you to go to the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation, chapter 2. God wants you and God wants me to be overcomer. If God predestined every single one of us, our faith, where are we supposed to end up? What's the need for overcoming? Overcoming what? Look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 11. Where it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's so important? He who overcomes shall not be heard by second death. You see what he says? If you the first fruits, if you overcome, if you make to the end, you don't have to worry about the second death. Why? Because you will have part in the first resurrection. Verse 26, the same chapter. And he who overcomes and keep my works until the end, to, to him I will give power over the nations. That's the first resurrection. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. It's the same concept. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and, I'll be, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Overcome. Overcome. Overcome what? Why do we need to overcome? If God predestined us a long time ago, what's going to happen to us in our life? Revelations 21. I love this one, specifically. 21. This whole chapter. It's a beautiful chapter. Feast of Tabernacle. And now, how, look how John started here in verse 1. Now I saw new heaven and a new earth. Verse 3. And I hear a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And look verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit how many things? Some things? No. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I'll be his God. And he should be my son. But look at verse 8. God doesn't want any cowards. Who go through the trials and they quit. Okay. Unbelieving. Abominable. Murderers. And can go on and on. The list is very long. But for the last scriptures. I want you to go to the Hebrew chapter 11. And you know I'm jumping the gun with the Hebrew study. We're going to go there eventually. And I want to thank Pastor Agent for his work for, you know, presenting to us the wonderful book of Hebrew. And I don't even go to this passage, Hebrews 6, verse 3. 
I don't even have intentions to go there, but that's the most profound scripture, what it says about one save, all of us save. But, let's go to Hebrew chapter 11. And you know, the most important ingredient of our salvation process is faith. Okay? Faith is something that God cannot just shovel on you and says, you know what? Jessica will have faith. I'll shower her with faith, and Adrian will have faith, and Caitlin's not going to have faith, even though I'll try. Faith. Look at Hebrew chapter 11, okay? This word faith, in this chapter alone, appears over 25 times. One chapter, faith. What's the point of faith if you're predestined to something? What faith? Faith in what? I don't need any faith. God predestined me. Look at this. In here in 11, verse 4, it starts by faith. It says, by faith, Abel. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch. Okay? Verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Verse 7. By faith. Verse 8. By faith. It can go on and on and on and on. And faith and faith and faith and faith. And I want you to just last, last scripture of the day. Hebrew chapter 12. Which is also used. By the people who claim once he always saved, they will use this scripture to prove their argument. Hebrew chapter 12. After all these things that happened in chapter 11, chapter about faith, look how Apostle Paul, let me say Apostle Paul the writer, okay? I also believe the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, okay? Look how he concluded there. Chapter 12, verse 1. Look what he says. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded, by so great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnare us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Think about concept of race. You're, you know, you're trying to run. You try to be as much as fast as you can. What Paul is saying here, don't put additional weight that you don't need it. Don't take a backpack and try to load your backpack with all the stuff that you not, might not need it in your Christian walk. Don't do that. Okay? If you're in the race, instead of running shoes, don't put a safety shoes. Because then, you know, they might protect you along the way first. But over the longer period of time, they will slow you down because you carry all this weight to the finish line. Why he will write something like that? Verse 2. And there is so powerful. Looking unto Jesus... The author and finisher, highlight these words, author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. And some people will say, you see, Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of your faith. He had nothing to do with it. That's what I will say. Go into the Greek word and see what it is, author, okay? The Greek word for this word is archegos. A-R-C-H-E-G-O-S. And, you know, I did that study on this word. And it becomes such a powerful scripture to me now. This word means, it can mean many different things. But this word alone only appears four times in the New Testament. Only four times in the New Testament. But it can mean a leader, originator, founder, chief, head, author, all kind of stuff. But look what I find on a daily Bible serious commentary by William Burton. I was so touched by it. So he says... He uses the illustration of a ship 
foundering on a rock. Someone jumps overboard with a rope and swims ashore. Securing the line somewhere on the shore so that others are able to grab onto the rope and come to safety. The one who did it originally is an archigo. He fulfilled the role of an archigo. And I did some studies. Every Roman ship or Greek ship would have a man on the ship who was very strong, muscular, and a very good swimmer. Some people who were employed on the ship, they didn't know how to swim. They didn't know how to swim. So the strong man, he was trained. He was the strongest swimmer during the stormy weather. And let's say the ship was in danger, but close to the shore. This one guy would attach the rope to his waist. He would swim across the treacherous water, beating the waves, beating the elements, get to the shore, attach the, attach the rope either to the tree or to the rock, and he would pull the rope nothing to say about you, you know, being predestined for something. What he said, Jesus made it clear the trap for us. And you know, if we keep our eyes on Christ and Jesus, he might not go, it might be dark, might be waves all over us, around us, okay? The wind might blow, but if you hold on to the rope and know what Christ says, nothing will be able to take away us from the love of God. So brethren, thank you for coming and listening. I hope this message was blessed to you, as it was blessed to my heart. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.